Coming up on this episode of SBJ Spotlight. Baseball's back, and so are its labor pains. Even as teams welcome fans back for a new season, Major League Baseball and its Players Association are keeping their eye on what happens when the collective bargaining agreement expires later this year. Our Eric Prisbel will have an exclusive in-depth report. Busted. Close games and upsets have been a hallmark of the NCAA postseason so far, but there have been a few missteps and the pandemic has continued to be a factor. After the NFL's stunning media rights deals, what's left in the media marketplace for other sports properties who have negotiations coming up over the next three to four years? Our media writer, John Rand, outlines the scenarios and offers his prediction. All of that, plus our Insiders Roundtable discussing the hottest stories of the week, right now in SBJ Spotlight. Hi, I'm Abe Madcor. Thank you for joining us for this edition of SBJ Spotlight, where we look at the biggest news in the sports business. Up front today, Major League Baseball, as opening day is April 1st, and the league has a lot going for it. It's returning at the right time with fans ready to come back to the ballparks. It's got exciting young talent. The league office is experimenting with a number of on-the-field changes at the minor league level. But one element remains consistent, a challenging relationship between management and players. That has a lot of league observers worried that the expiration of the collective bargaining agreement could lead to a work stoppage. Joining me now is our baseball writer, Eric Prisbel. Eric, thanks for joining us. This drumbeat of concern over a possible work stoppage seems to grow louder and louder. No doubt, Abe. And you know, a lot of people really believe a potential work stoppage is a possibility before the 2022 season. In fact, I talked to a longtime source who's familiar on these matters last week, and I asked bluntly, what is the collective feeling across baseball about a potential work stoppage before the 2022 season? And the source said, scared to death. The whole industry could be driving itself off a cliff here. Look, everybody knows the CBA expires December 1st. This will be like a shadow hanging over the entire 2021 season. Now, right now, league, the league, the teams, the players are all focused on opening day, but we thought it made sense to talk to a few people who have been through previous collective bargaining talks to get a sense what they believe are the keys for the league. Jeff Morad, who was once an MLB player agent before serving as both an executive and an owner for the Diamondbacks and the Padres, he says the relationship between players and owners has certainly changed. The relationship today is 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 more sophisticated than ever before. Uh, both sides have data uh, at their disposal that they didn't have in the past. Um, the dynamics are the same, right? It's it's a labor union and it's management. But that having been said, this is a special case of labor relations that you know it's a unique case. I think that if you know, both sides just can keep in mind that, you know, the pie is, has grown, it's gotten larger, it's been handicapped in the last year for obvious reasons. If both sides can keep those things in mind, approaching this next round of discussions, uh, while every negotiation is unique in some respects, there's a part of this one that I would argue should fall into place more easily as long as both sides are honest with the other. 
The league's business partners also have a vested interest in labor peace. Former Anheuser-Busch executive Tony Pintoro and former Gillette and P&G executive Greg Vi said that during a time like this, sponsors have to make contingency plans. If you're at a pause button, it all just comes to a grinding halt. Uh, the next thing that happens is you're now basically stockpiling money because, I mean, we used to spend well over six figures, you know, $100 million plus between the league and the teams. And now each game you lose that you can't make up, that's money in your pocket. As a marketer, you're now having interesting conversations with your CFO because your financial people are going to say, well, that's not happening. Let's say you lost 20 games or 30 games. Let's take that money to the bottom line, right? And, and, and that, that, those were real conversations. The, the argument is, well, if it's not those 30 baseball games, it can be something else. I would be getting prepared. Um, you've just gone through and, and are still going through um, the, um, the COVID, uh, the loss of games, the loss of spectators, um, the loss of exposure for your brand, the loss of ability to, to be able to use MLB to um, to drive your brand, to build, uh, to, to drive sales, to get to get your brand out in front of people. Um, so you've lost a year there. We tried to get someone from the labor side to, to speak to the CBA issues, but they all passed. Uh, the, the issues are very sensitive at this point, and talks are expected to begin in earnest, I'm told, in the summer. Uh, and even Jeff Mora told us that if he were still actively involved, he would not have been able to speak with us. But from my reporting and talking to sources on both sides of the issues, here's what I believe is top of mind for the union. Number one, service time manipulation, the practice of keeping a player, a good player who's ready for the big leagues in the minor leagues uh, to take away a year of service time and delay his clock for free agency is huge. Kevin Mather, the former Seattle Mariners executive who resigned for a, a bunch of incendiary comments, he kind of said the quiet part out loud reg regarding service time manipulation. And you know who took notice? The union. And they made clear that that issue will be at the forefront of CBA negotiations. Number two, competitive integrity. The big question is how many Major League Baseball teams, year in and year out, are actually spending money and trying to field a competitive team? The union says it may be only two-thirds of Major League Baseball teams. Uh, and Major League Baseball comes back and says, hey, wait a second. Look at small market teams like the Oakland Athletics, like Tampa Bay, who have made the postseason. Look at what the Padres are doing, just spending money like crazy this offseason. That will be an issue front and center in negotiations. And third, uh, and certainly not least, financial transparency. How can you get a deal done? How can you progress in negotiations if you cannot agree on the set of facts and figures? And that's where we are with these two sides right now. We saw it play out in the return to play negotiations in 2020, where some financial figures would leak from the league or would be reported in documents from the league. And the union would say, wait a second, we don't believe these figures or they're spun in the league's favor. Uh, we need more transparency. We need you to open your books. MLB doesn't have to do that. They're not going to do that. But how can we progress past that point if we can't agree 
on exactly what those figures are. And that will be a huge issue. Eric, all three of those things you mentioned, those three points speak to the issue of trust. And that's where I worry about the relationship between management, notably Rob Manfred, Dan Hallam, the executive council, and the union, Tony Clark, Bruce Meyer, others. Can they get over this trust issue and reach a deal? Abe, you nailed that. What's at the center of this relationship right now is mutual distrust. It defines it. And, you know, they, they both sides realize that. And they both realize how poorly this looked throughout 2020. The public rancor, the acrimony, all played out amid a pandemic. So a lot of people say, if you can't get that done smoothly during a pandemic, the negotiations, how, how are you going to tackle real heavy issues such as service time manipulation, competitive integrity, and all that, you know, when, when everything's at stake here? You know, one source close to the negotiations told me the one hope we have is that we could meet in person this summer and kind of do away with the Zoom calls, which certainly did not help the relationship. It might, may only help a little bit to meet in person, but it certainly can't hurt. And, you know, I think a lot, speaking for a lot of people, I think the relationship can only improve from here. It got pretty nasty last year, but there has to be some level of, of mutual trust in order to, you know, reach a deal. Abe, two of the three people we talked to for this story said that Major League Baseball will lose games. And a third would only say that he's hopeful. The way I've seen the union negotiate and, and MLB negotiate, I think there's 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 they'll they'll be prepared to have get missed games. Um, I think they have to get it leveled. And if that unfortunate that's unfortunate way, I mean that's really, really unfortunate. Um, but I think you have to be prepared and and, and I do think there'll be games missed. I sense that there's still um, you know, and I'm just trying to be honest, I don't want to be, you know, critical per se, but but that there is sort of an old school um style that comes out of major league baseball probably a little bit because of its history with marvin miller and and then don fear and everything else like this which is you have to fight you know with the bayonet you know in our hands and the, the knife in our teeth um but i think the world has changed and i think we've seen that it's better to sit down um and sort of behind closed doors with with smart people and and sensitive people and say let's figure out where this needs to go but I don't think that's going to be the case. And I think it's going to take um, probably. Uh, never a goal of either side. Um, that's, a, that's a worst case scenario. And the fact is, is that, you know, the fans uh, deserve uh, all efforts on, on, you know, finding a solution. Um, the clubs deserve it and the players deserve it. Eric, there is a lot to unpack there. Transparency, trust issues. Thanks for that. What else are you keeping your eye on? Because baseball still has a number of other issues they're focusing on as opening day is on April 1st. It's a fascinating time for the league, no doubt. It is. Three yep. top issues on my mind. Number one, attendance. Finally bringing fans back to ballparks. And I think, you know, like six weeks ago, talking to executives, the feeling I got was hey, maybe they'd reach 20, 25% by opening day. It, it's a little better than that now. I think yeah. most teams are at between 20 and 40% in terms of what they could fill their ballparks with on opening day. Colorado Rockies, 42.6% or so. And obviously the Texas Rangers in my backyard, 100% capacity following the lead of Governor Greg Abbott, who issued an executive order to open businesses fully. And the Rangers say, hey, 
we could do it. We did it for the World Series and the NLCS. It works. We have a plan in place. We're ready for this. The fans are ready for this. The question is, what will that in-venue experience look like for fans? Cashless, contactless, those will be the key words you keep hearing. Number two, I can't overstate the importance for MLB to reach the Gen Z demographic. It's a major push for them, and it will continue to be this season. The central core to that is a theme of personalization. And you talk to Chris Marinek, who knows so much about technology, and that's, that's what he focuses on. And third, which is really interesting uh, in my mind, Major League Baseball, we're going to have seven inning doubleheaders again. We're going to have a runner on second base in the 10th inning. On the lower level of minor league baseball, we're going to see more experimental rule changes. Uh, the base is larger. There's going to be some band shifting. Uh, there's going to be changes with, with how to pick off a runner. Uh, more changes and tweaks with the automated strike zone. So what's at play here? Uh, the main issue is how to improve the product. But I do want to follow up because my understanding, Eric, and I'm talking to some team people, Commissioner Manford has the right to unilaterally impose some of these changes at the major league level, but has been reluctant to do so because he hasn't wanted to upset the union. He's wanted to, he's wanted to do it through collective bargaining. I think that's absolutely right, Abe. But if it comes to it, to protect the, the game itself and to move the game forward, I have no doubt that Rob Manford will make changes that he sees are necessary in order to do that. At this point in time, I understand why he may want to play it out in terms of collective bargaining with the union, considering everything else at stake with the CBA expiring December 1st. And I, I look, I've been told this from a variety of executives that, you know, if it, if necessary, Rob Manford will do what it takes to make the changes, to keep moving the game forward, you know, during this very critical time for baseball. Eric, I can't end the segment without talking a little bit about the teams at play. Pretty interesting times. I'm hoping the Red Sox are a little sneaky better than people think. What teams are you looking at? Abe, it starts with the San Diego Padres yes. and, and this rivalry with the, with the Dodgers. I mean, the Padres could be, you know, the second best team in baseball, but maybe the second best team in Southern California as well. Right. They're must-see. They're must-see TV. And you got to watch them. For me, it starts with that. The Dodgers are going to be spectacular again. Uh, you know, I think the Blue Jays could be good. With the best division in baseball, I think without question, is the NL East. Extremely deep, and it also includes the New York Mets and uh, new owner Steve Cohen. And it'll be very inter interesting, interesting to see what fingerprints he has on this team and what impact he has on this team, you know, in, in year one. But But those are some of the you know, the, ma the main storylines in terms of teams that I'm focused on. We're not going to see an expanded playoffs this year. So it it's kind of back to normal, at least for one more year before, you know, they hopefully reach a deal on a new CBA. You're right. I think you nailed it. What Peter Seidler and the Padres are doing in San Diego, that is must-watch TV. I hear the Yankees are supposed to be still pretty good this year. So a lot of good storylines on the field. We're going to talk about baseball in our Insiders Roundtable later on SBJ Spotlight. Eric Prisbal, great job. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Abe. The NCAA basketball tournament started last weekend. And while there were plenty of exciting games and upsets, and the bubble has worked overall, there was also a major controversy sparked by this social media post from Oregon player Sedona Prince. 
I got something to show y'all. So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college basketball for women, this is our weight room. Let me show y'all the men's weight room. Now when pictures of our weight room got released versus the men's, the NCAA came out with a statement saying that it wasn't money, it was space that was a problem. Let me show y'all something else. Here's our practice court, right? And then here's that weight room. And then here's all this extra space. If you aren't upset about this problem, then you're a part of it. Earlier today, we met with some of the speakers for our all-in conference at the end of the month. Here's what two of them had to say about the inequities between the men's and women's basketball environment. It was a, such a head scratcher, right? It was just all you could do is shake your head and go, oh my God, like who from the NCAA knew that condition existed and didn't deal with it? Um, it it's, uh, it's 2021, folks. Like this is, this is, you know, this is time. Like we need to... Uh, uh, call that out whenever we see it and whoever can say it. And, and social media provides such an amazing megaphone, especially in our league. I can tell you there was a lot of chatter over the weekend among the commissioners about it. We were unaware of it. Um, I do think there will be some important conversations after the season about just equities and equities, you know, writ large um, around um, sports. And I think to Rick's point, I do think the athletes have important voices here that we're going to hear more and more from, whether they be pro players or collegiate athletes. We're not going to put that genie back in the bottle. We're not going back to a pre-social media time. So it's a reality of our lives. And we need to understand that everything we do is visible and everything we knew we can be held, we do can, we can be held accountable for. So, you know, hopefully somebody at the NCAA is scratching their head saying, yeah, that's something that's not going to happen again. We'll discuss the NCAA tournament later during our Insiders Roundtable. And just a reminder, our all-in conference will be held on March 30th and 31st. Registration is free, and we've got a great lineup of speakers. You can get the details on our events page at sportsbusinessjournal.com. Hope to see you there at SBJ All In. Coming up after the break, we take a look at what the NFL's new media deals mean for the rest of the sports industry and where the challenges might come to make those upcoming deals pay off. And still to come, our roundtable of experts on the issues of the day, plus predictions and people of the week. All of that coming up on SBJ Spotlight. Sports Business Journal will amplify and elevate the industry's conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion with the launch of our new conference, SBJ All In, investing in a culture of representation, equity, and action. Over the years, SBJ has brought you compelling discussions with some of the industry's most influential leaders. We're seeing positive changes from the NFL. We've seen players lead the way. Um, I'm encouraged because, look, this is just our generation's time to get involved. Our theory of change is that we're changing thoughts, changing attitudes, and that will lead to a change of behaviors. I'm thinking about um, those in positions of power and how we're going to progress in terms of uh, our view of women uh, in the future of sport. It's not just about the numbers. 
It's about that diversity of thought, the opportunity to have different voices at the table. Our workplace promise is every voice matters and everybody belongs. And that's what I want our people to feel. On March 30th and 31st, SBJ offers two days of discussions that will educate, empower, and provide a roadmap for change. Welcome back to SBJ Spotlight. I'm joined now by John Oran as we look to the next round of major media rights negotiations. John, we've had a few days now to digest the 11-year NFL deals, and now I am looking for the reaction, the long-tail impact on the rest of the industry for properties that have upcoming media deals. Let's go through them. We've got MLS in 2022. We've got the EPL up in 2022. The Big Ten in 23, and the Pac-12 in 2024. Well, let's start with MLS. In our production meeting, you told me to bring my inner Steve Karnacki. So you can't see it, but I'm wearing uh, some khakis. I'm rolling up my sleeves. And now <laughs> we're going to dive into it because the NFL, Abe, am awesome. I working? Is this Karnacki-like? I like it. Uh, the NFL didn't set the market. It took money out of the market. And that's one of the problems that I see for, for a, a league like the MLS. So we have... Can you see that? 246,000. That is a viewership number that each MLS game got in 2019 on ESPN and ESPN2. Last year's number was even lower than that. The league brings in $90 million in TV revenue from ESPN, Fox, and Univision each year. Those deals end next year. And the problem for the MLS right now is that TV executives look at ratings. Those are not the kind of numbers that are going to get that's going to get ESPN to dig deep into its pockets to renew that deal. But a couple of things. MLS is ending its local deals in addition with its national deals at the same time. They believe they'll have a stronger package of inventory to take to the market. MLS also has a very young, diverse demo that one could say is a big bet on the future. It's a young, diverse demo. We saw how that worked for hockey. And they'll certainly come with more content and more content should, should equal higher rights fees. But the, again, the numbers are very small. I guess everything aggregated can work out and it depends on how serious CBS is in terms of getting it. It depends on mm -hmm. how serious Fox is because they own the World Cup. If there's, mm -hmm. It's like buying a house. If there's more than one bidder, the prices are going to go up. But right now, those numbers, the numbers of the uh, uh, viewership, those are really low, Abe. So you're not incredibly optimistic about the MLS next round of media negotiations. How about the EPL current deal ends in 2022? We know what that has done for NBC Sports. 33 million, Abe. That number, that's the number of Peacock streaming service subscribers. Okay. So this is a deal that works for NBC. They're building up an entirely new platform on the backs of EPL. They're getting people to, to come in, and if they're watching EPL games, they sample everything else there as well. EPL brings in good television numbers in windows where there's not a lot of competition, week, week, weekday mornings. NBC loves them. CBS is get, doing more with Europe, so I can see CBS getting in there. And once again, once you get a bidding war, things are looking up. So you see NBC potentially renewing with the EPL. And as you noted it, they get more than nearly a double the amount of overall revenue than MLS does. The deal ends next year. NBC pays, uh, I think it's $170 million a year right. for, yep. for EPL rights. 
NBC loves EPL. Again, it's a driver of the streaming service. NBC wants to renew with EPL. The question is whether or not somebody comes out with a higher, a higher bid. Let's go to the Big Ten. Current deal ends in 2023. This would be Commissioner Kevin Warren's first major media deal. I am bullish on the Big Ten. That is 12 million viewers. That's the average viewership that has turned into Ohio State, Michigan the last three times they've played. 12 million viewers. The average margin of victory for the Buckeyes in those three games, 21 points. TV networks, again, they look at ratings. They look at viewership. I think the Big Ten has big brands in college football, which especially matters. And I think the Big Ten is going to have ESPN going after it. Fox is going to want to keep it up. Uh, CBS could be interested. It just lost the SEC. I think they're going to be plenty of bidders. I think the Big Ten is sitting pretty. Well, you nailed it. Big Ten, football, basketball, these are marquee programs. Of course, you're a little biased considering you're a Terp, a well-known Terp advocate, and also a member of the Big Ten, but you feel very strongly in that property. Let's switch then to the Pac-12, which I think, John, is one of the most talked about media negotiations coming up. The current deal ends in 2024. The current deal has also been widely criticized by members of the Pac-12, but also some media observers of being undervalued. How many teams from the Pac-12 have made the college football playoff in the past seven years? Two. Can you name them? Absolutely. Oregon. Oregon and Washington. Look, TV executives, they care about ratings. They also care about performance. Performance matters uh, to TV contracts. USC, Oregon, Washington, they're all big brands, but the TV executives at Fox and ESPN, they've taken note of that lackluster performance, especially in college football. Right now, ESPN and Fox pay about $250 million per year. That deal ends in 2024. That's one that bears watching. I'm skeptical. That's $250 million per for the Pac-12. You mentioned the Big Ten at $440, so you see the discrepancies right there. And we've talked about this on SBJ Spotlight before, John. Pac-12 looking for a new commissioner. Whoever is the new commissioner, the biggest pressure on them will be this upcoming media rights negotiations. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And, and But again, these aren't deals in a vacuum. These are deals that come after the NFL doubled its rights fee and is getting $10 billion that just came out of that market. These, these are for-profit media companies. They, they, they want to make profits. That money has to come from somewhere. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this all falls out. That giant sucking sound was a billions of dollars being pulled out of the media marketplace. We'll have to see what's left for these other properties. If you had to look at any surprise network, surprise bidder, or surprise outcome, I know we're looking long-term, but what could it be, oh, great one? CBS. Keep your eye on CBS. That Champions League deal that they did a couple of years ago was eye-opening to me. They're going to be in the mix. They, they didn't go for the NHL rights. They kicked the tires. They're, they're now a part of conversations they've never been part of before since they merged with Viacom. They now have Paramount Plus that's going to yeah. have sports. They're, they're the company that's going to possibly uh, take a look at sports rights more aggressively than they have in the past. Well, I may have created a monster asking you to channel your inner Steve Karnacki, but you did a great job. Great talking with you about this. Stay with me, and we'll be joined in a moment by other members of today's Insiders Roundtable. But great insight, John Aran. Coming up next, our Insiders Roundtable will discuss the top storylines in the sports industry and offer our predictions and people of the week. 
Welcome to our Insiders Roundtable, where I'm joined, as always, by a panel of experts to discuss some of the big issues of the day. On Spotlight this week, a first-time guest, Jimmy Lin, co-founder of Kizwe, an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University. Our SBJ media writer, John Aran, and SBJ's marketing and sponsorship writer, Terry Lefton. I see the sweater club has grown by one with Terry joining you, John. So let's start with a follow-up on today's first segment. Opening day for Major League Baseball is certainly a welcome sight after the year we've had. I'm gonna ask all of you, what is the state of Major League Baseball as a sports property as it enters the season? And what about collective bargaining? Are you optimistic they can find labor peace? Jimmy, it's your first time in the spotlight, so we'll give you the first word. Great, thanks, Abe. Thanks so much. I'm very positive about the upcoming Major League Baseball season. I think having the fans attend the games is going to be great. Obviously, it's going to be good for the fans, but it's great for the players who want people back. Uh, it'll be great for the marketing sponsors. You know, also very important, it's going to be great for the ballpark employees and all the, the neighborhood area will be able to go back and work. So I think that's good. There's lots of good young stars and lots of good storylines out there, whether it's Soto or Tatis or Acuna or Otani. A lot of good young talent. Um, so overall, overall, the league is doing really, really well. But I am a bit concerned about the younger demo. I mean, I reflect back on my uh, college students and their interest in going to games. And I think the length of the games and the pace of games is an issue with the younger generation. So that's going to be, you know, they have to deal with that over the long term. In terms of the labor deal, uh, you know, both the owners and players make a lot of money, right? Uh, hopefully there's good common sense here. You know, baseball could you know, lose a younger demo if they do go on strike. Uh, the younger demo is going to continue to gravitate towards each sports and gaming and soccer and lacrosse and the multitude of mo mobile apps and streaming options. So, you know, baseball, don't ruin a good thing. A labor strike will be bad for all involved. Count your blessing. Let's please get a deal done. Here's a problem, Jimmy, is that the, uh, I'm totally skeptical that the owners and the Players Association are going to get together. I can't think of another sports entity where the relationship between those, those two are as bad as it is in baseball. Terry, have you seen one? I don't think so. Look, I think at this point, uh, labor in baseball is willing to say no to anything that the owners propose. Look at them. They said, we'll pay you the same, play 154-game season. They're just going to say no to everything. And I am not optimistic that there will not be a, a labor stoppage at the end of this season, unfortunately. Let me go back to John and Terry, though. To Jimmy's point, what is the state of baseball as a property in your mind, John Aran? All right, I'm the media reporter, so I'll take it from a, a, a media sense. It's doing really well, and it's going to be good for a long time. There are a lot of headlines about ESPN. They're going to pay a lot less for, the, for their package. They're going to get less content, but they're paying right now about $700 million a year. They're going to pay less than that. But MLB already has Fox. They already have Turner. Those two me big media companies are paying 40% increases in their contracts. Those deals go through 2028. Right now, the situation, as far as media goes, is looking really, really good for baseball. Referencing Jimmy's early comment, who says they haven't lost the uh, younger generation already? I hope that's not true, but I certainly think it's trending in that direction. As far as baseball this year, I'm considering this Major League Baseball season to be the canary in the coal mine for spectator sports in general. So many more dates, so many more opportunities to track how many spectators feel good about coming back. But over the past year, most of the research, no, all of the research we've gotten has said a third of the fans feel good about going in as soon as you open the gates. Let's see if that's true. Let's see how many feel safe about going. And it'll just be a good tracker 
for the uh, sports industry at large. As we talked earlier in the show, I am fascinated by baseball's attempt to make their game faster and to have more action. But I do think John Oran hit on it and Terry echoed it. The heavy amount of distrust between players and management is going to be a very, very different obstacle to overcome. Let's go to another welcome site. That was the start of March Madness. There have been exciting games, stunning upsets, but also a few missteps and a reminder that the pandemic isn't yet behind us. John Oran, what have you taken from the first week of March Madness? It should be a celebration, Abe. I think it's been great. The NCAA conducted a full season, a strange season, but a full one, complete with conference championships. The NCAA bubble in Indy, it's a marvel. It's great. Even when one team, VCU, had a COVID problem, the NCAA dealt with it quickly and effectively. But it wouldn't be the NCAA if they didn't have a self-inflicted wound. And I was just struck with the anger that poured out after the photos of the women's weight rooms in San Antonio became public. And what became apparent to me is that this is not a short-term PR problem for the NCAA. This is a long festering problem that they really need to deal with. I think the first three days of the tournament have been terrific. And, and think about it, no, no Duke, no Kentucky. I don't think that's hurt the tournament. And the fans completely fallen in love with Oral Roberts and Abilene Christian and Loyola Chicago. I think the games have been good and exciting. I just ch check with my friends all. We're all excited about it. I, I think it's been a home run so far. Well, certainly the engagement, the viewership numbers have so far been strong. There has been a lot of buzz. I would agree. My friends are talking about college basketball. I am with John Aran, though. The self-inflicted wound that the NCAA imposed upon itself is something that I think is going to be in the news for a while. And a lot of influential people in collegiate athletics are looking for some accountability of what happened and why. And it's a shame because I know people like Lynn Holtzman and Danny Gavitt, their intentions are always generally good, but they acknowledge they messed up. They acknowledge that, but I do believe there is going to be somebody who may pay a price for these inequities of the first week of the men's and women's tournament. There has to be a, it's going to take more than just an apology to appease a lot of people on this. It shows you the disconnect between the NCAA itself and college programs, because I don't think this ever happens on a college campus, but they're so removed and there's so many levels different and, and, and separate from the colleges themselves. That's what makes these things happen. They, they're just not looking at it. You know, the other thing is you see the positive impact of social media. You mm -hmm. saw an Oregon yep. player used it. You saw athletes from all a lot of major sports, both men and women supported. You saw what Dick's uh, Sporting Goods did. Uh, I think that's great. And, you know, I mean, just firsthand, you know, teaching here at Georgetown, I also work with a lot of student athletes, mentor them. And I've seen firsthand the impact of Title IX. Uh, you know, there's a John Thompson Athletic Center, and now the women's team has the same thing the men's team. The same, they have their own gym, they have their own workout room, own video room, own locker room. And that, that's equality that we're striving for. To their credit, the NCAA moved very fast over the weekend to make changes, but they will be on the defensive, I think, for the rest of this tournament. We're already a quarter of the way through 2021. And one question we don't have yet an answer to is whether fans will flock back to sports, both in person and on television. What are your thoughts, Terry? Start with you. Well, I've said from the beginning, Abe, that the vestigial portions of the pandemic will be the most interesting. How many people are going to remain working at home? How many people are going to travel after this? How many people are going to resume their viewing habits? We don't know any of the answers yet, but... How, I mean, the larger question is, how will the pandemic have changed society? And we don't know yet, but that's the leading question. 
Listen, I think one of the things that people take a look at is, you know, is baseball popular? Are, are, is somebody going to sit down and watch a baseball game? Or is somebody going to sit down and watch a generic basketball game? And for as long as television has been, television views this as a TV product, there need to be storylines. And right now you have fewer people sampling those storylines. Once, once everything comes back and you get the storylines that sort of get, get you outside of the hardcore fans, I think they're going to be fine, but there are going to be a lot of bumps in the road, especially as Jimmy said earlier about attracting some of those younger people and figuring out how to get those younger, younger demos to, uh, to consume like, like you know, our generation does. But like so many things, it's a trend that was already happening and the pandemic accelerated. My son's 22. I'm the sucker, maybe, watching the entire game. He'll come with me. He's seen 16 highlights over those two or three hours. Who's doing it right? But moreover, how do you make a business out of him watching nothing but highlights? All of us have that focus group of one. My son, the same thing. He's watching highlights on Twitter. I'm sitting down for the two-hour game. It's a totally different way that young people are consuming video. Jimmy, as a quick follow-up to you, you're on a college campus all the time. What are the habits you're seeing of your students? I, I mean, I'm seeing these students that they rather watch a game on their phone than a 60-inch, 65-inch TV. I mean, the phone is the social center of their universe. And, and not only do they want to watch, they want to be able to engage with their fans and the whole gamification and the social media part is a big part of this. So it's going to be interesting. You know, I had a major uh, sports retail exec tell me last week that 13 is the key age. They target the 13-year-old because once you get to the age of 13, after that age, the do the boys stop playing sports? The girls stop playing sports. So they try to convert that person to a sports fan. If they get them past 13, then they might become a lifelong sports fan. But if they don't, they lose them. Let's move on with a fun, quick hitter. What sports event do you have circled on your calendar to signify the end of the pandemic in the U.S.? Terry Lefton, start with you. Uh, I would say Sixers winning the NBA Finals, but Iran would kill me. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to say, no, originally I thought it was going to be the Olympics. I think that's a little early. I think some people, I've been talking to this, a lot of people about this. Some people have been telling me MLB All-Star Game in Atlanta. I think that might be a little early. So I'm thinking it's really late August, early September, either U.S. Open tennis uh, in Flushing or the site of gloriously fall NFL and college football stadiums. Abe, I'm going to take that a little bit of a different way. And I'm looking in April when Augusta lets fans, uh, patrons, oh my gosh, I just lost our, 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 our uh, press credential. When uh, Augusta uh, allows people on the course to watch the Masters, a great young field, TV ratings are gonna be up, the azaleas are gonna be in bloom, and it's not gonna, we're not gonna be back, but that light at the end of the tunnel is gonna be vi visible easily from Augusta National. I love watching sports on TV and I, I do it every single day, but for me, it's once, once again that we can attend a live sports event. I'm, I live in D.C., so I'm a season ticket holder. The Wizards, Caps, are national. So being able to go back and see live action is what I'm excited for. John Aran, don't yeah. worry. We've never been credentialed at Augusta, so you didn't hurt <laughs> our standing with them yet. And two, I'm with Terry. I think it's going to be post-U.S. Open, actually. I'm hearing they're projecting uh, audience of 30% capacity at the USTA National Tennis Center for late August. We certainly hope that number increases, but I think it's going to be post-Labor Day when we're going to see fuller venues, particularly around football. As we close out the Insiders Roundtable, it's time for our prediction and our person of the week. We'll start with predictions. Terry Lefton, what's your prediction this week? Uh, my prediction is that the civil cases in Houston where seven women have come forward to accuse Deshaun Watson of uh, sexual misconduct will not go away. A lot of very powerful forces 
uh, on both sides of this. And given the current political climate, I think it, it's going to be a big, big story and it will not go away in the offseason. Can you stand one more NFL media prediction? <laughs> yes. Now, no. now that the no. networks are locked in through 2033, the NFL is going to focus on Sunday ticket. And all signs suggest that the league is going to leave DirecTV. So that's not much of a prediction. They're going to leave DirecTV for a streaming service. ESPN Plus, Amazon Prime, Paramount Plus maybe. But I'm saying don't sleep on Peacock. Hmm. Jeff Shell has made a career out of big business-changing sports deals. And what better way to have Peacock stand out from the pack than to have the NFL's out-of-market package? I think you're going to see the continuing, uh, the increased rise in visibility of, of women and girls in sports. I mean, you, you saw, we, we referenced it earlier about the NCAA women's tournament, but I just think this is the year of change, right? So WNBA will be celebrating their 25th anniversary, which is a milestone event. I, th I think that's fantastic. The National Women's Soccer League has an influx of new female investors, whether they're athletes, uh, celebrities, right. business executives across the board. I think that's great. Sue Bird and Alex Morgan and Chloe Kim started are starting this, this new uh, media platform because they were frustrated with the low women's sports coverage, which I think is great. Cam Ng is the first general manager of a major league sports franchise. And this summer, the Tokyo Olympics is going to be the summer of women, whether it's USA soccer, USA basketball, USA gymnastics, from Katie Ledecky to Simone Biles, they're all going to start. And I think that's, that's, that's great for the sport. Well, my prediction is one of the highest rated games of the NFL's upcoming season will be the one that's on every network's wish list. Tampa Bay at New England, Tom Brady returning to Foxborough, and the storylines going up against his villain, Bill Belichick, who just went on a massive spending spree in free agency. Belichick sending a message that the Patriots are ready to make another run. And that's good for the league, and that's good for its media partners, because the Pats still draw eyeballs and attention. They're loved and they're loathed. The NFL's Thanksgiving game in Dallas will surely be the highest-rated game of the season. But I expect Bucks pats on NBC's Sunday Night Football early November. It'll jumpstart the holiday ad sales push. It'll be at our amped up Gillette Stadium. My prediction is viewership will approach more than 30 million, which is a ridiculously good number for a regular season NFL game. Now let's go to our people of the week. And Jimmy Lynn, I want to start with you. Well, I know I'm a homer for this one, but I have to go with Patrick Ewing. Um, I, I know they lost, but I just you know, take a look at the, the big picture. One of the all-time best college basketball players, one of the top 50 greatest players in the NBA. But he spent 15 years as an assistant coach. Like, how many other top 50 players did that? Zero. And so the past year has been tough. He lost a lot of transfers. Uh, coach Ewing uh, had COVID. He was hospitalized in May. And then his mentor and father figure, the legendary Coach Thompson, passed away last August. So, and they roll into the season. The Hoys are, are, are predicted to finish last in the Big East. Uh, they lost a, a couple weeks in January when a couple players t tested positive. But then they turned things around. They won four straight in the Big East tournament in the Garden, which is amazing. And the way the day they won the championship, ironically, was the day Coach Thompson was hired 49 years ago. So, uh, you know, Coach Ewing's turned the program around. They have a top 10 recruiting class coming in. And for me, the big picture, this is the legacy of Coach Thompson. Great coach, great social justice leader. I mean, he's been doing this for a decade. And he's a role model to so many current coaches. And, and the other thing you read about how many NBA coaches were really happy for, for Patrick because he put in the work. So the way I ended it is Georgetown basketball's back. My person of the week is Noah Garden, the chief revenue officer for Major League Baseball, because he will have to turn it around from a 60 to a 162 game season and somehow attract new revenues at a time when, well, at least some of us do not believe they will have 
a next season. So he's uh, well-versed, but it's going to be a tough job. My person of the week, Kevin Mayer. Did you see his interview with CNBC last week? He went scorched earth. I don't know if I've ever seen a high profile executive like him go scorched earth like that in a long time. His comments about how he wanted Disney's top job and didn't get it, that's what got the headlines. But my jaw dropped when he talked about the troubled future for ESPN's linear TV business. I mean, this is ESPN. This is Disney's cash cow for decades. But Mayer said, and this is a quote, being in a direct-to-consumer business is substantially better than just riding that wholesale business down. Wow. And he also insinuated that maybe Bob Iger's departure wasn't all of his own decision-making, which was another eye-opening comment from that interview. Well, for me, there's Sedona Prince, the 20-year-old University of Oregon women's basketball player who Jimmy noted earlier, took the images of the disparities between the women's and men's basketball amenities around the basketball tournament. I found her to be a strong yet measured voice about equality over the past week. But I'm going with two other people, LeBron James and Maverick Carter, who joined the ownership of Fenway Sports Group, marking an important step in their quest to own a professional sports team. These two continue to impact a lot of people and they are major influencers and they became the first black partners in Fenway Sports Group's history. So LeBron James, Maverick Carter are my people of the week. Well, that wraps up our Insiders Roundtable. Thank you to our guests, Jimmy Lynn, as well as John Aran and Terry Lefton for sharing your thoughts. And thanks to all of you for joining us on SBJ Spotlight. If you have questions, thoughts, or comments, please email them to us at spotlight at sportsbusinessjournal.com. We'll see you again in two weeks for another look at the key issues in sports business. Thank you for joining us, and take care, everybody.